0: Welcome to Toby Haydock's Who's Round. Women in Doctor Who? Never. Well, let's see if they were there at the very beginning. Welcome, everybody. I'm in. It's. it's No overstatement, say I'm in the nicest house I've ever been in. Uh, And only a year, exactly a year to the day late since we first uh, uh, arranged to interview, this lady has been very patient with me, so I'm going to ask her to uh, tell me who she is and why I'm talking to her about Doctor Who.
1: I'm Virginia Weatherell, stroke Virginia Bates, because I was married to the actor Ralph Bates. And I was in the Doctor Who, which I have to say was in black and white, um... I'm not... can't remember what year it was. 1960-something.
0: 63-slash-64. Was, was it? Right.
1: Um, and it was the uh, series that... I think it might have been series two, when they introduced the Daleks. And the Daleks were baddies, and I was a Thal, a goodie. Yeah. And I was, like, head Mrs Thal. And our people on our planet, we were all blonde. And... Um, and that's that's how I got into Doctor Who, and i of, of course was with the original. Yeah, well, it was a, it was the second bit. ever
0: story. Yeah, so yeah. five five weeks in is this is the second story, and uh, and the first appearance of the Daleks. So, yeah. I mean, what, what was your reaction to them? Because nobody knew what they were.
1: No, no <laughs> not not at all. Um, I don't know really. I mean, I just thought it was kind of they were quite quirky. These sort of little things on wheels that. Um, you know, guys would get in and out of, and they ran around, and we had to be terrified of them. Um, but you know, being an actor, you do what you do, and you hit your mark, or you have your, you know, you make sure you don't hit the camera. Um, but I remember we filmed it round Christmas time, and Verity Lambert, who was the producer, gave a Christmas party, and I was trying to find a present, and I thought, oh, I'll find a sort of a a roboty thing, and uh, you know. Camp it up and give it to her. Happy Christmas! And do you think I could find anything? When you think now of all the merchandise and the Daleks from you know chocolate Daleks to I don't know Easter egg holders and um, egg cups and whatever uh, tea towels, but it was I, I didn't find anything. You know, it didn't didn't exist. Um, but you kind of get into it. You know, you know that this is the most terrifying thing that you've ever because you're an actor. That's mm. what we do. We're paid to do, aren't we?
0: Well, of course, it was the Christmas because we look back on that time. What a what a what a time to be around! Because it was Doctor Who started the day after the assassination of President Kennedy. So, yes, that's right. I mean, uh, turbulent and that's right. fascinating times.
1: Yes, I had I'd never thought of that. Of course.
0: Um, and you, of course, had no idea that you were at the start of something <laughs> that was going to be this well, massive show.
1: How did we ever know? You know. For, when you're an actor and you know it's the same with all the horror films that came later somebody called your agent calls and says oh you've been put up for you know taste the blood of dracula or the curse of the crimson altar and um it sounds quite good it's only two weeks filming over in so and so and you think oh, that's not really what i want to do you know i've got a theater thing coming up or whatever but it'll fit. it fit in nicely and so-and-so's working on it, who you've worked with before, and is fun, and you do it. Fast forward all these years later, that's all I'm known for now, is <laughs> Doctor <laughs> Who and all the horror s*** sh- that I did. Yeah. Which, you know, was always fantastic fun, um, but it was never taken seriously. You know, working at the Royal Court was much more serious than going on tour and remembering your lines and play for today at the BBC and whatever else it was that I did. Um, but there you go.
0: And what about uh, the doctor himself, William Hartnell? Do you have any memories of him?
1: I do. He's a grumpy old (laughs) bastard, to be quite honest. Um, I remember there was a scene where I had to wear... We all wore these sort of little funny plastic costumes. And, of course, don't forget, it was black and white. So it was always your costume, whatever you wore, were in tones. It was either very dark or very pale and it couldn't be too pale, it couldn't be the same colour as your skin and all that kind of stuff. And I remember it was a sort of a grey-blue plastic thing. And on my head, I had like a little crown, I mean, I think now we'd call them a fascinator. Um, It was a little round thing with spikes on the top of my head which was clipped onto my straight hair. And in the first shot, I'm bending over the cauldron and I'm like a dinner lady <laughs> and I'm turning something a stew you know thal stew and on action I have to look up and talk to the doctor or the doctor's talking to me and there were maybe four or five extras in thal identical costume so on action and in those days you didn't go twice you did it you know it was very they were very strict. It was very, you know, you, you mumbled, you carried on. Or if you forgot your lines, which, I have to say, builded frequently, but you mumbled along. Anyway, I was over my cooking part, and I put my head up, and my headdress gets caught in the back of somebody else's, one of the extra's knickers. I'm afraid I started to laugh. I didn't know how to get out of it. And I'm turning my head one way and the other, and, anyway, he was furious. And of course, he kind of lost the momentum. So when we went again, he dried. It was kind of, it was a bad moment, but you know, these things happen. So after that, we were never, I was always a bit of a threat. He had no sense of humor. He was old. I mean, he was lovely, good actor, um, but you know, he was what you saw.
0: And. I mean, it's I mean, it's. It's hard enough in theatre when you've got so many things to think about, but when you're doing a similar sort of performance, but then you've got to hit marks and cameras yep. and three... Ca- you've got to take into account two or three different cameras. It's quite... Well, I think we underestimate how technical acting on television was. It
1: really things. is, because, of course, you could never look at the camera, but you have to have a feel for it. At the same time, you're looking at that strip on the on the floor, which is your mark, and you know that you cannot go over or beyond or left or right... You can only ever hit that mark because you're going to mask somebody else, yeah. um, and there weren't the you know there wasn't the technology that there is now. Anyway, it's all yeah. It, I guess it, in a way it was hard.
0: And it's funny because I know I know you've done sort of various signings and things for our mutual friends, Phantom Films, and and the last one that you were at, um, Philip Bond was at. So yes. uh Died. Who, I mean how extraordinary that you do a job with somebody and then 50 years later in a, yes. in a church hall in Chiswick there you are again
1: <laughs> that was extraordinary because I adored Philip I mean he was so handsome he was such a good actor and so lovely off camera and you know always having a cigarette in his hand and his knowledge of theatre and this and that and his stories he was wonderful so I was really looking forward to meeting him Again, after and I didn't, you know, unusually, a lot of the actors I came across over the years. But Philip, I never saw again until the books, uh, the the signing, the Doctor Who signing. Um, what was it? Two years ago? Must have been two oh, years I think ago. It was no. More
0: recent and even I think it was in the last year, year or so. was Yeah, it? maybe yeah.
1: maybe the year before last. Yeah, um, and he was great, and we were sort of hanging around the church hall afterwards because his daughter was coming to pick him up, and he was offering to give me a lift, and I lived quite close to the church hall and I said, no, no, don't worry, I'll go up on the underpass, it's fine. Um, and we chatted and we were going to meet at the next gig, Doctor Who gig, and I was stunned when he died. It was, it was so sudden at Christmas. Mm. But there you go, you know, we're all dropping off gradually.
0: It was, and it was, you're right, it was just over here because it was through, it was then that uh, Paul gave you my letter, so. Yes. And that's how we got in touch. Exactly. Um, Yes, well, look, let's um, let's move away from Doctor Who because I think we've got lots of fascinating things to talk about. So, t- tell me about you. What was your you, 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 what was your your, your background and, and and was was it always going to be acting? I know you spent some did you spend some time in Mauritius? When yes,
1: it was always going to be acting. Um, my mother was a makeup artist. She was the first female makeup artist ever to be employed in this country, and worked at Pinewood Studios. So, as a child, from the age of Three, four um I used to go with her every day to the studio and play in the makeup. you know there was sort of like the long um makeup area, then there was a long wardrobe area and a long um hairdressing area, and they were all sort of my aunties and uncles um and my mother, of course, was the only female, and you know they all adored me and i was I learnt. Straight away, you know that you had to be—you couldn't say, you couldn't move when they were shooting. You—you—you you, you weren't allowed to. It was, or you'd be thrown out. And we'd be at the studio at half past six in the morning because it's the first thing is the makeup. So my mother always had to be first on, you know, and be there twenty minutes in her room cleaning all the brushes, and then the artists would arrive and be asleep in the chair, um, you know, big stars. Um, And I suppose it was in my blood, and my grandfather was a film producer, Bray Wyndham, um, and at one point actually lived at Pinewood Studios. So it was sort of inevitable, I guess, that I was going to be in the studio. And I just had it in my blood, and I will never forget, even now I can smell a studio and those thick doors when they close, and the silence, it's magic to me. Then I went to school and my mother married and because my father had been killed during the war or at the end of the war. And then we moved to Mauritius. I was sent home to boarding school and then didn't see my parents for just over a year. Then um, when my father, stepfather finally left Mauritius, we, they all came back and I went to drama school. And then left drama school, I went to the arts education, and literally the day after I left, I got a commercial. And I was off, you know. I couldn't wait to leave home. I left home at 17, moved to Notting Hill, Holland Park, and never left.
0: Wow. And um, so from that commercial, you just... I mean, it was just a... From
1: that commercial I did, my first job, believe it or not, was uh, Bob Monkhouse dentist in the chair i had a two days i think um was it clive donner or was it paddy Carstairs directed it it was a friend of my mother who you know i sort of met at the studio and i think the commercial was something silly like wall's ice cream and clive was directing it and he said you know there's a couple of days on that are you up for that and you know gradually worked my way up and i think i went to Liverpool and um, did a bit of Panto and, you know, it's what we all did in those days. You just kept going. You didn't have parents that took care of you. You got on with it. You did. You weren't proud.
0: Yeah. Well, you, you, you worked with a, uh, must have been young, one doesn't imagine, a young Michael Winner on one of his early yep. movies. Yeah.
1: Thank you very much. Oh uh, God, that was terrifying. Uh, West 11.
0: West 11, that's yep. right. Yeah,
1: very early on because I think I was still living at home. Because I remember Ben Ayres, who was on it as well, a dancer who then became a very good actor. Yes, uh, I did. And also at that, that time, then we gelled and I, we became very good friends. I adored Ben. And we used to travel in together. And he was a ghastly man, Michael, to work for. Diana Dawes was on it and Alfie Lynch. And I was in a sort of a party scene and I remember him up on the gallows sort of shouting down at me and... Um, but in a way, it was a good learning process. You really kind of... I got into it. I mean, years later, fast forward, we actually became really good friends. Hmm. Really good friends, because he let he lived very near to where my shop was and was always coming by and would take me out to lunch. And it would be excruciatingly embarrassing, because he'd scream and shout at everybody. But he was funny. And um, he... my best friend, Jackie Darrell, was... Um, living with uh, Oliver Reed, who tamed Michael, and he would never scream and shout at uh, Oliver. So I think that was a sort of, you know, after that I was kind of, oh, well, she's okay, and I was sort of in the club, as it were. But he was all right.
0: Where did you think the screamy-shouty thing came from?
1: He was probably, you know, bipolar. You know, looking back, there was just, you know, it was in his... There was something wrong with him, um, I'm sure. But, you know, now we'd recognise it. Probably then you, it was just sort of, like, oh, God, that Michael.
0: Or <laughs> well, an Oliver Reed. I mean, there's another name to conjure. Mm. Uh, but again, I, I guess... So that's the fascinating thing about, um, I think, being an actor, isn't it? it's that it's, it's partially to do with the, the company you keep... And, yes. ..and the people you encounter. And
1: you meet along the way, you know, and you just kind of never know, you know, something, somebody that you'll talk to along the line or somebody that you will meet. Um, I remember doing, I do not even remember what it was called. Um, Judy Huxtable was a, a, a client of mine at the shop. And I met her and she was living with at that time. Um, I think they're married, Peter Cook. And mm. Peter Cook was doing a pilot for something or other and wanted me, and Judy obviously suggested to him, and I met him through the shop, I guess, through her, and I did the pilot, which was hysterical. I don't even know what ever happened to it, or whether it was shown, or, you know, you do these things. I just remember being, I think we filmed at Twickenham, or maybe Teddington, and I remember being half naked in a bath, and having sort of um, pigtails, and they were all Wired up and being, you know, thrown into this bath and, you know, falling about and it was kind of quite hilarious. And of course, he was terrific to work with. But you know, it's what you do.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, you've been called upon to do, to do. I mean, with the, certainly with the the Hammer Horror, you get you get it all, don't you? I mean, get it uh... <laughs> all.
1: A lot of running around, a lot of being, um, you know, being dead. This is, I think, probably the worst thing. I think that was on Demons of the Mind. Mm-hmm. I I think Shane killed me, and I'm thrown into a lake. And then it's, oh, we're going to be working late tomorrow night. Um, is that OK with you? And I went, yeah, it's fine. Oh, um, it's the scene where we pull you out of the lake. So you might be a bit cold. This is November. And I'm going, fine. So I'm thrown into a lake, and... You know, you can only do it once because you're now drenched and I've got the hairpiece which is drenched. And, of course, when you're that cold, you shiver. Mm. But you're not allowed to shiver because you're dead. Um, And I remember them giving me brandy and actually I don't drink, so that was trying to sort of maybe knock me out a bit. But, you know, you do it because you're a pro.
0: And they, they, they've had a hold over a certain audience for, for a very long time, Hammer, haven't they? Can you, can you, account, can you account for, for that?
1: I've no idea. I've no idea. Except, um, you know, it's, it's a cult. And in those days, the films were shown, all the films that we all did, were shown, you know, either at midnight, sort of after hours, and it was kind of semi-forbidden... You know, it was, we're talking about X certificate mm. here, which, um, you know, uh, forbidden fruit maybe, who knows? I mean, look at Clockwork Orange that Indeed. I did. Indeed, yeah. Um, fortunately, I got to see it at the premiere and then it was banned because uh, um, Kubrick had a big fallout with the censorship um, and said, right, that's it, which was, you know, great on him. And it was only ever shown, I think I saw it in in Paris, uh in France, doubt uh, and you remember being frightfully excited seeing that it was on and having my photograph taken outside uh, but outside the theater, but there you
0: go well and that, and that, of course then this whole mythology uh, appeared around clockwork orange because yeah, because you of you that couldn't see it yeah um and I would think, quite a difficult role for you because you're involved b- b- being on stage with, surrounded by men and then outside of that surrounded by a film crew. Yeah. Um, where you are sort of a version therapy for for Malcolm McDowell's character.
1: Well, it it was very strange because the whole thing, right at the very beginning, when I was put up for it, it was Kubrick's doing this film, don't really know much about it, but, you know, be at and such place at three o'clock. So... I used to go around on a bicycle in those days, so off I'd go and I'd park my bike outside and I'd go in. I was given a script and I read it. It was to play a psychiatrist or something, and then it was, put your script down and go in. And then they said, "Um, right, could we, um, we want you to imagine, it was very early days of video. I'd never acted in front of a, a video before. So there's a woman or a man behind a screen and the casting director. And it was a small room. Could you imagine now walking through a forest and two soldiers appear and they rape you? Okay, so an action and there's just an armchair. So I'm sort of miming, walking through a forest and a couple of soldiers, oops, I'm being raped. Oh dear, job done. Thank you very much. And that's it. And then a week later, um, Kubrick would like you to read this. And it's the part of Marilyn Monroe from The Seven Year Itch, with an American accent. No, you know, quickly read through, so I sat there and did it. Thank you very much. A week later, Kubrick, uh, we just want you to just quickly take your top off, um, go sideways to camera, lean back and then back to camera, oh and say your name, thank you very much. And I get the job. <laughs> so then it's, um, oh we're going to send you to Leonard's, which is the top hairdresser in London at the time, and uh, to get your hair dyed blue. So. My hair is dyed blue and you're filming the next day and Carl will pick you up. So Carl picks me up and I go out to a library where we were filming in Norwood, which is actually, I think it was very near a cemetery because we did some stills there. Um, I'm not used for about three or four days. So I'm hanging around this diet, down- and I don't really know what I'm doing. But I have this script, which I'm looking at from time to time, which is the call sheet. Then when we come to do it, um, I meet Malcolm, of course. I met him a few days before, And we need just a scene where he's belching and being sick, because um, he's being antagonized, because uh, if he's angry, he's if he feels sexual, in my case, he's sick. So I taught him how to belch, and I told them to get a can of Coca-Cola, because that's one thing I do really well, is belch. And if you give him a can of Coca-Cola, he'll be able to do it, because fizzy drinks make you belch. And then it's my turn, and a, a couple of days we do that, job done. So I didn't really know what I was... I didn't know what to expect at all. Then, and this was shot in September end of the summer and I'm brown and I've been in Rome and God knows where, then in January, just after Christmas, I'm Kubrick wants to do one more shot and it's just he and I and he is literally, there's no audience, it's just, we're back in Norwood Library, he's literally on my shoulders and there's a shot of him looking down my body which is tricky because we've now got to match the colour of my body to how I was in September, and that's that's Kubrick, complete utter perfectionist, and I adored him. He was terrific.
0: Well, you have to you have to trust your director to do yeah a, a scene of that ilk.
1: Well, why thing. would you? Why would you? Well, how, why would you?
0: Yeah. You
1: know, and I think over the years the sort of not the arguments, but the hassles I used to have with the horror films. Oh, we're just going to do the continental version now. You have to take your bra off, and we're going to da da da. da. I'm going, no, I'm not doing that. It's not, not. I, uh, you know, I'm, I, you know, we'd argue for a day or three days, and I wouldn't do it. Or in the end, you kind of do it. But you know, Kubrick was a master. Mm. Um And you trusted him. I did trust him.
0: And do you think? And do you think? What do you think of it as a film? Because it had this sort of all this mythology for so many many years and then of course when something is the expectation is never matched by the reality but I, think, I still think oh, it's, it's an extraordinary film though, yeah, isn't it? It's extraordinary
1: still... and terrifying I couldn't I don't think I could watch it now I mean sort of living alone and, and you know the, the scene with Adrian Corrie I mean mm. it's unbelievable
0: yeah yeah
1: it's terrifying I mean it's the atmosphere that's where he's so clever it's what he makes you think and that's never mind the visual it's what how the the imagination plays all the tricks, and it's so
0: real well and it's it's because he's such a it's making it's that curious thing where he actually makes violence quite beautiful, yeah, and that plays with all sorts of yeah well i I
1: didn't things. want to say that, but you it's absolutely right
0: um so that yes, interesting. So well, but I mean, we've we, you you mentioned the 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 hammers, which obviously are a slightly different thing. But of course, without them, without, without uh, was it Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde that you met Ralph? On? Yes. Yeah. So 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 without them, your life would have been very different.
1: Yes. Who's to Who's to know? Because I well, of course, you know, you think of destiny, God. I met Ralph on Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. You know stunning, I vaguely knew him as an actor, I remember thinking how beautiful he was and I remember telling a friend of mine, phoning up um, Senior Merton who I was great friends with and saying, oh, was, I met this fabulous guy, Ralph Bates, he's amazing, he's very vulnerable, he's such a good actor and really fascinating to watch and he's a cross between um, Louis Jordan and Sean Connery, he's just stunning, but he's got this kind of gentleness about him. And he's a he's a thinking actor. And I think the first day we met, Ralph stabbed me in the back. <laughs> and we, we barely smoke, spoke, but I would be, you know, sort of hanging around on set and, you know, we'd run lines and stuff. And then I realized, which is, oh, looking back, really cheeky of me, looking on the call sheet, I was having to make my way in on the train, you know, if it's a seven o'clock call, it meant leaving at catching the first train and having to change, and or I said, I saw that he lived, like, virtually a street away from where I lived, so I spoke to him and I said, Ralph, wow, this is so cheeky of me, and please say no, but if I stand on the top of labrook Grove at, you know, whatever, half past six, would you mind picking me up? I'll be really quiet, I won't say a word and he went, no it's okay, it's cool, it's fine, don't worry about it so we would have lovely chats in the car anyway that was that and I had a shop just down the road from where I lived and subsequently where he lived and I became very friendly with he and his wife Joanna and they'd all hang out at the shop and I used to do these Saturday teas and everybody would come and you know, the cheese would go on until supper and whatever. And then, a couple of years later, we did a play for today, mm. which we were, they were both in, and I was in. And Ralph, it was about two rival agencies for television. One was the very hip agency that Ralph and I were in, and the other was sort of the J Walter Thompson, which Joe was in. So we were on this for, well, I, I suppose, a month, you know, you do the rehearsal and diddly do, and that kind of, and then a year later their marriage broke up, and we kind of got together, and then got together a bit more.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and he played. I hadn't re- realised this because he played a lot of Frenchmen. And I thought, I wonder if that's just because of his. But he was, he was, and he was, Half he French. was
1: descended from Louis Pasteur. Yeah, Louis Pasteur with his great uncle. Wow. And his, his a uh, great grandfather yes was his mother's father gave the, was a doctor and Pasteur, because he was a scientist, not a doctor couldn't give the um, the injection for rabies so he gave the very first injection so we're kind of there's a picture of Pasteur over right there uh. we're kind of um, and actually Ralph on, in, very much wanted to do a film, a documentary about him and was sort of working on it, but of course never did. Um, and that would have been quite, that's a shame, that would have been fascinating because he's quite an interesting, well obviously, man, Pasteur.
0: Well an and, and, and acting because so I remember when Dear John started, for example, my mum went, that's that's Ralph Bates who was this this sort of dashing old yeah. playing this sort of really rather hand dog divorcee yeah. and it's a yeah. lovely it was a lovely show and yeah. it, it, must, it must it must a real change for him in terms yeah, of the parts he was. normally played.
1: Yes. And you know, good for him because I mean I d don't think people realise he was a very good comic and but always I mean, not typecast, but I suppose in the end he was, because he used to do review at Dublin University, and he did a lot of comedy work, but his timing was, was impeccable. And, of course, John Sullivan became our, and, and his wife, Sharon, became our best friend. You know, we, we went out together a lot. We went to, uh, on Ralph's, thank God, on Ralph, in retrospect, looking back now, on Ralph's 50th um, birthday, as a surprise. We went to Venice, and we had the most hilarious time. And following year, of course, he died. But um, you know, so you never know, do you? But you no, know, Ralph, uh, dear John was was a different uh, for him. You know, I think it was always like a challenge. Mm. Uh, and then he'd go off and do, you know, Head of Garbler or, or something, and come back and do another series. Oh,
0: didn't he do Head of garbler that-
1: Tom Bell Tom, was in. Tom, oh, yeah. Susanna York was in. And Tom Tom Baker, Baker was in. in it. That's it was right. It's a massive cast. It was fantastic. At um, was it not Wyndham's, Cambridge
0: Theatre? That's right. Because yeah. that's because Tom Baker, of course, <laughs> says says I I was in uh, I was in uh, Susanna York said a but I think I should have played Hedda because <laughs> that's just that's just how uh, it is.
1: <laughs> I'd love to catch up with with Tom adore him. Um he was sort of rather annoying and sad, he by chance, the only job that my son has ever done apart from being a musician, he worked at oh, I've forgotten, uh not G's and Hawks, but some some gentleman's outfitters in the Strand. And uh my son Wills was working there for I think he did lasted a week and he Tom Baker walked in and uh, my son said, oh, you know, you sorry, you don't know me, but my father was the actor Ralph Bates. Said, oh my goodness me, my dear boy, um, I must take you out for lunch. Um, and Will said, well, you, n- not today because, you know, I've, I've already had my lunch waiting. He said, well, I'll come and pick you up tomorrow, um, 12 o'clock. So Will's was so excited he told me and it was all gonna be great. And I said, oh, give him my love. And such a lovely man. And, you know, they had a great relationship, he and Ralph. And very funny notes used to go backwards and forwards. a very witty man. And unbeknown to Tom, Wills was asked to change a light bulb at this G's and Hawks or whatever it is. And um, he got electrocuted. (gasps) And they, he was obviously survived, but it was kind of a bit major. I think they sent him to hospital or whatever. Tom turns up and doesn't know that Wills is, so that was that. Oh. And they're never been able to, I thought, oh, well maybe along the, somewhere along the line, I'll meet, bump into Tom, or be able to relate this little message that, do get in touch, I still live in the same place, love to see you. Yeah. And Wills now is a hugely successful composer has his own studio, lives in L.A., is doing five TV shows back-to-back back back, um, and, you know, didn't n- never really gave up the day job. Mm. And that's just, you know, he should never have done that job in the first place. So there.
0: And it keep, it's in the family in, in both because your daughter Daisy...
1: My daughter Daisy, he was in, you know, um, many series uh, and still acting just come back from LA, she had a big interview on something, I don't know what happened but um, I guess she, I, I will hear, she just literally got back last night
0: And and for you, I mean we've mentioned you You mentioned the shop as if it's just this thing but you you, you opened the, I, I'm desperate to talk about the shop because what an extraordinary place and it was something you'd started when you were um, a, a working actress as well, so how did you juggle all that and, well just tell me about the shop The shop,
1: right, well I was an actress, obviously, Uh, and when I wasn't working, having to, you know, pay my rent, which is ridiculously low when you think (laughs) about it, but it's all relative, isn't it? You know, I was paying, it was originally £6 a week, but then it was £9 a week, Um, and, you know, had to be paid. I lived in this magnificent flat, um, just up the road from finally where uh, I found a shop. And um, I'd be waitressing, working in bars, um, doing a bit of cabaret, um, painting, decorating. But you know, jobs worth anything I wasn't proud cleaning. Then um, I bumped into a friend in my little local village, Holland Park, who said, "Oh, come and have a coffee." And we walked through this empty shop, and I said, he was living above it. And I said, what's happening here? We're dying to know what this is going to be. It used to be a dairy. And he said, oh, this crazy girl called Felicity bought it, but she's expecting a baby, and now she wants to find someone who'll rent it, but she wants to eventually come back. So she only literally, you know, she's going to go off and have the baby and then come back in a couple of weeks. And I said, well, okay. doesn't sound bad. I said, well, how much rent is the rent? She said, £20 a week. So I thought, well, I must be able to find something and sell, you know, I'll do this. My flat was rimming with, as it so-called, junk, (laughs) Um, decorative junk. Uh, And my mother had just sold her house in Hampstead and had just bought this place in Ibiza, believe it or not. And of course, there was a load of stuff in it. I had and I had to get rid of it I thought, great, pile it onto this empty place and I'll get rid of it. So I had a couple of days to prep it, I put newspaper over the windows, got some funny old brown furniture and painted it pink and silver and camped it up, had old hip bars and brass beds and petticoats and funny old lampshades and pinboard tables, I mean, crazy stuff. I mean, not when you think about it now, but in those days, people weren't doing that kind of stuff. Mm. I only had to make 20 pounds a week and I've made a profit. You know, if I bought something for 20 and sold it for 30, job done, which is what I did. Um, And I began to think, this is a piece of piss, I can do this. (laughs) And I asked the woman if I could stay there a bit longer. Oh, and at the same time, I was doing Demons of the Mind. So my shop hours were two until ten at night, so I had the mornings to go for interviews. And the wine bar, Julie's Wine Bar, didn't exist, but there was a restaurant called Julie's that was very trendy, and I figured that I'd get the people going and people coming out, which I did. Never paid for dinner, because people would come in and go, oh, Virginia, come over and join us and let's have supper. I say, well, I can't, but send this up over, and we'll come over afterwards. So it became a kind of, a bit of a trend. And I did it for 43 years. Um, and I met Ralph, and when Ralph and I got together properly and got married, and got, I got pregnant, um, I kind of thought, well, at least this is somewhere where I can bring the baby. I took two weeks off, had the baby, brought the baby back, sat on the sofa at the back, fed the baby. People would come and go, and if somebody came in, I'd say, hold the baby, I've just got to do this, and it was very laid back in those days, mm. you know, Daisy learnt to walk there. I remember her, Ralph was doing dance at the time. I remember Robin Ellis coming over, and Daisy had a crush on Robin, and got up and walked over to him. Job done, Daisy walked. Um, And, you know, they'd all come over at lunchtime, we'd all hang out outside. It was sort of like a meeting place for everyone. And it became my family. And after Ralph died, they very much, the whole area, we sort of clubbed together and sort of took care of me. It was my family. It was hard letting that go when I left Portland Road. They were my, you know, backup.
0: And, I mean, you've you've made it sound... Very easy, which I'm sure it wasn't. But and uh, and 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 it's, you know, um an area like that. Uh, it it has to prosper only because of your your sourcing of stuff. Your eye, you yeah. know how uh, uh, and and that that must just be innate, is it or? Uh,
1: I think it's something I kind of didn't realise when I was much younger. Of course, I suppose the theatrical background and. You know, my grandfather, looking back now, actually probably had quite an eccentric house, so I was used to beautiful pieces, beautiful things that not necessarily had a value. And my mother was totally the other way, she was very, couldn't understand how I lived, and would actually think how I dress was comical and actually quite appalling that I could go around wearing a Victorian petticoat and a little Victorian cami top and a, a L'Armé jacket. How could I possibly? You know, what would people think? <laughs> and I didn't care what people think or thought. It didn't matter to me, and I had sort of created my own world, and I, would, I had an eye which I hadn't realised. You know, I could walk down the market... I could go to Paris and walk down, I could go anywhere. And if I saw something, I could make that into, I could find something for a fiver and set it for a 100. Mm. And, you know, just either wash it, iron it, paint it, turn it inside out, turn it around, take a door off, take the drawers out, just take the carving off the top, and sell the carving. You know, it was just something, I began to realize that there were people like me. Mm. There was, there was a market, and probably thinking about it, I probably had a future, maybe I should have gone into some kind of design, theatre design, Um, gone to art school, who knows. Um, But, you know, the career change with Ralph being an actor, there wasn't room in the family for two actors. Mm. You know, there was suddenly a point where I was offered tour of Boeing, Boeing or something. And Ralph was doing a series. I couldn't leave. Mm. I didn't want nannies. I wanted to bring the children up myself or the child at the time. So it was an easy option. I found that I could hang on at the shop and I was a bit, you know, because I was my own boss. If I was late going in or if the child was ill and I had to stay at home, it wasn't the end of the world. If I just phoned up you know, the girls next door and said, could you just put a note on the door say, oh, I'm going to be late or I can't come in today because Daisy's got chicken pox. Um, it was easy. And then, you know, I, I think it, it was a time as well. You couldn't do that now. You could be different. Whereas now it's, everything is done. Every avenue is different. And I found after Ralph died, I had to sort of, a grip a bit. I had two kids in private school, so right now, okay, I've got room for all these brass beds and old bars that I'm flogging. <laughs> if I put the clothes, that that's a market, and it was just at the same time that I was kind of discovered by the models and the and the designers, and it was easy, and I could find the gear, and I could, you know, suddenly I was flavor of the month. So I jumped onto that bandwagon quick. So you quick. had Naomi
0: Campbell and yeah. Helena Christensen and people coming yeah. through your doors, and
1: Kate Moss, and you know, it, it was easy. And the designers, and Galliano, Ralph Lauren, Donna Karen, you know, Donna Teneviss Archie, and you know, it was it was amazing. And I just phoned up my girls in wherever, and I'd say, you yeah, know, have you got that sequin jacket still? Bring it over.
0: <laughs> and um, and so on. And so when did, when did you stop that, quite recently? Three, four
1: years ago next month, um, or actually uh, in October, um, it kind of coincided. It was sort of, I was just beginning to not, not lose patience, but it was, I find the market has changed a bit. I found that the public were beginning to get a bit rude. <laughs> and I thought, do you know what? My threshold of my tolerance is, there's a cutoff. And do you know what? If I don't stop doing this soon, I'm actually gonna kill someone. Um, because people were come and say, why are you charging, you know, when you can get a sequin dress in, top Topshop for 10 pounds? Why are you charging a thousand? And I'm going, well, this piece, is a one-off, made in the 1920s, it's all hand-made, and this area is hand, you know, hand-crocheted, this lace you cannot find anymore, and blah, 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 it's all hand-beaded, and they still wouldn't get it, which is, you know, that's fair enough, because I think now people have a different kind of attitude. It's instant gratification. They buy a dress for whatever, they want to wear it once, dump it and then they'd go out somewhere else, they'd trash the piece or they would wear a sequin dress from me or a chiffon dress and come back and it was ripped and they'd say it's falling apart and I say yes but you know you can't expect a piece like this to be worn to a nightclub and have you know cigarette burns in it and red wine poured down it and your heel ripped through the hem and expect me to repair it, it's, you know, you have to treat it with a bit of respect because those pieces were taken care of by maids. Mm. And they were put on the lady and taken off by the lady and they were hand-washed and repaired and whatever. Anyway, it also coincided with my mother being extremely ill and dying and I was left a house in Ibiza which was... In a terrible state of repair and I felt that this was a project and I thought right that's it I'm moving on I'm gonna get rid of the shop and I'm now gonna have a bit of fun on this house which is what I've been doing and also I have grandchildren now four grandchildren I have two in this country two small boys one of th- uh, four and seven and a two year old and a six month old in LA So I'm travelling and I'm doing all the things I've wanted to do. I'm meeting girlfriends and going to shows and doing all that stuff. Because the shop was amazing, but it was tying, you know. Mm. I'd have tickets to go to a show and I'd get a call from Naomi saying, Oh, darling, can I, you know, can you, hmm, or Liv Tyler would want something to go to a premiere, can you wait, mm, of course, I say yes.
0: <laughs> well, I think you deserve because it's taken us a, a sort of year to, to hook up since we were the last post meet tonight, which I then couldn't do because, as you said, you were doing Ibiza and and going to the states and all of that sort of yeah. thing. So, you, you're you're not being idle. No,
1: not at all. I've <laughs> never been so busy. I mean, people say to me, "Oh, don't you regret the shop?" And the one thing I regret is is losing my family. And I mean, I forget. I I regret meeting the friends, the people that used to just walk in the door and, you know, that was incredible but at the same time I don't think that happens so much now you know, I'd look up and there'd be Barbra Streisand at the door there'd be Madonna Um, wow, you know, that's I don't think those, I think those days are over They, they don't kind of work like that now, you know, you're expected to send the pieces to wherever they hide out Um, but you know, because it was it was such an extraordinary place, so extraordinary to look at and so eclectic they actually wanted to come and see what it was all about whereas, you know part of the thing that you if you bought something from Virginia the shop, you bought you bought the memory you became part of the experience. Mm. And it was very trippy. And nobody could do that now. I mean, there have been loads of shops that have tried to kind of have that image. But, you know, it wasn't about that. You had to have the magic, the pieces mm. that I found at a time that, when you could, they don't exist anymore. You know, my shop, Abitha um, now, is full of all the pieces. Some are here that I had in the shop. It's hilarious. You know, people come and stay and go, oh my god, I remember that bed you had that downstairs oh my god, I remember that we all used to do this, that and the other and now it's on the terrace in Ibiza um, anyway whatever, you move on
0: well brilliant, well thank you so much for this, I've only got the two, the two last questions um, uh, the first of which I've pre-warned you about and I think I know the answer anyway but uh, would you care to explain what uh, your charity is that my we asked the listeners to donate to?
1: Um, my husband, Ralph Bates, died from pancreatic cancer 26 years ago. And at the time, pancreatic cancer was sort of virtually unheard of. I didn't even know anything about it. But, um, so I immediately started uh, a research program for pancreatic cancer research with um, Ralph's oncologist, Dr John Glees. And we do research at St George's in Tooting. And um, if anybody wants to um, contribute to the fund, or send a little donation, or look up, read about it, it's called the Ralph Bates Pancreatic Cancer Research Fund. And every little donation will be a part of a massive program and we have made several breakthroughs and you know in those days Ralph was diagnosed and he was given six weeks to live he lived for eight weeks nowadays the prognosis is better you know they live for maybe patients might survive two or three years sometimes four years which isn't very much but it's one of the worst cancers so if anybody wants to contribute it would be most welcome.
0: Well and they tend to so uh, please do listen because uh, uh, this is an endeavour that Virginia has given her time for as of course everybody does so um, the final thing because we um, nominally uh, convened to talk about Doctor Who um, and this is listened to by Doctor Who fans all over the world, so what is your message to the Doctor Who fans out there 50 or so years after you first you appeared in it?
1: Keep watching! Keep watching! I mean, I've been following it just recently, and it is... It's no longer a child's programme, which I think is a little disappointing because I think it's absolutely terrifying. But hey, you know, be brave, watch it, and I suppose it's all relative. You know, I, I sometimes meet um, Doctor Who followers and they say that, you know, they were terrified watching it. Um, you know, the Daleks and the, the Thals back in the 60s. So, you know, it seems to me when I look at it now, I think, oh, my God, that's so bland. But now, um, I think it's amazing. And the quality and the, the sets, the makeup, is amazing. Terrifying. So, don't be scared. Hang in there.
0: Well this one was a long time coming and you've been very very patient with me so I'm so glad we finally got to do this. I'm so glad thank you. Well thank you Virginia with a little dates. Thank you very much. Pleasure. That was great. Thank you. Thank you. My thanks to Virginia and of course her charity is especially close to her heart and would benefit from your donations. It's the Ralph Bates Pancreatic Cancer Research Fund which is www.ralphbatespcr.org.uk ralphbatespcr.org.uk If you could donate, that would be marvellous. You can follow me on Twitter at Toby and uh, there's a trailer coming up for something that I'm doing on the radio either soon or last week depending on when you listen to this but uh, we'll try and ensure that what I'm about to plug uh, will be broadcast in your future time travel it's very difficult i think there is something here worth probing with all the means we have but spokes will just pass clean through a rope do i know that pass through anything a spoke can. imagine that hereabouts in the far past there was some great catastrophic event I've been walking these woods all my life, Loki. That were no owl. Sounded like a child crying out. Tell me about the visitations. Twas last year. Exactly a year ago tonight. The 27th day of October 1768. It was full dark when I heard the noises. The noises? <gasps> I have an open mind. Close it, sir. Close it to nonsense. Keep your voice down. But... The perimeter! I heard men running on a great cobbled road, sir. Through them woods. Squire! Your instruments in the clearing come quickly! Have you noticed the air temperature? It's
1: dropped. Yes, I've noticed.
0: I heard a curious sound. I... I I felt something. I, I sensed it. These instruments, they're reacting. Blindly playing with forces they don't
1: understand. Oh, it's, it's
0: real. It's real. I don't understand. I, I think. I think. <laughs> Quickly! Sir! <laughs> Get out of here! Help me! Oh, help me! Something has got hold of my leg! <sighs> Mark Gatiss and Adrian Scarborough star in The Road by Nigel Neal, adapted by Toby Hadoke, on the 27th of October on BBC Radio 4 at half past two.